as we nestle in now and come to the very word of God. If you'd like to read with me, I'll be uh, reading this morning out of the letter of James. So turn to the book of James if you'd like. There's uh, Bibles there in the pews and the page number is there in your bulletin. But before we read here, would you please pray with me? Lord Jesus, your word is alive. So would you make us alive now in the hearing of it? Would you give us ears to hear these things, eyes to read these things, hearts to believe these things? And by the hearing of it, would you humble us now before you, our master? We love and trust you and ask your help now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'll be reading this morning from the letter of James in the first chapter, chapter 1. Uh, I'll take up, or read at least, these first uh, 18 verses. So this is James, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes and the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. This is the word of God. 
now. For the better part of last year, our joyous 2020, uh, we spent reading through uh, uh, at least the opening chapters of the book of Exodus. And then in the past couple of months, we spent some time with various scenes uh, in the life of Jesus in the book of John, hearing his life and some of his words. Today, we're beginning a new journey. Uh, through the book of James, and we will see how long this takes us. Uh, I, I know it's only five chapters, uh, but we, we, I have a habit of kind of taking a while on these things. We're in no rush here. We want to really listen to the wisdom of God's words here. We know that James is... It's one of the more practical books in the New Testament. So James is going to unpack for us what it looks like for people who have now already been saved by the grace of Jesus to live a life of godliness. What does it mean to live a fruitful life in Jesus? So James will give us guidance in matters of money, matters of speech and the things that we say, matters of how we deal with suffering and temptations. And, and the book is full of these little tiny punchy lines, you know, the kind that you can just write down and stick on your mirror, you know, the, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Or resist the devil and he'll free, flee from you. Or, the, or the, maybe the one, of, one of the most famous lines in here, faith without works is dead. There are lots of treasures in this book, and, and I don't want to get ahead of myself. You know, we'll unpack them as we get to them. Uh, but I've considered, since this is the first week that we're in this book of James, I thought about maybe just reading the whole thing, reading all five chapters all at once. I decided to, to spare you that. <laughs> I'll leave that to you to do in your own time. I'm not in the business of assigning homework here, so this is really up to you. But I, I hope that you would do this. I'd encourage you in these coming weeks to sit and read these five chapters all together as a whole. It'll only take you 15 minutes. You might even do it this afternoon. It is the Lord's day, after all, not just the Lord's morning. Uh, and not just once. Do this again and again and again. This is worth taking the time to do. It is good for us. We do not just read the Bible because we're Christians, and that's what good Christians are supposed to do. We read these words patiently but persistently because we want to know God. We want to be transformed by the renewing of our minds because we want to be convicted of our own sins so that we'll cling to Jesus and trust his guidance and follow after him by his spirit. We read these things because the words here are really living and active. These words that I've just read are the very words of God. The Lord Almighty the creator and sustainer of all things has just spoken to us. His words are a gift 
of love to us so that we will know him as he is, not just how we imagine him to be, and so that we'll know what he says is good and good for us. It's not even like we have to go and hunt down what God says. We have his words here. They're on a page right in front of us, in our laps even. Oh, what a shame if that's all the further the words got. We want the word of God not just in our lap, but in our ears, in our minds, in our hearts even, that flow through our very veins. Then we want to be doers of God's word, of course, not just hearers only, but in order to be a doer of the word, we have to be a hearer first. I know it's the first Sunday of the year, and and there's nothing particularly special about a new year. It's just a calendar, you know. But, but now's a good time to really take stock of the things we're hearing. To consider what you're allowing into your ears on a daily basis. From TV, from phones, from your own head. If you want to be filled with the things of God, which I trust that you do, we have to keep our ear pressed close to his word. Now, even though I didn't read all five chapters, we'll get through them as long as it takes, but uh, I just read part, at least, of this first chapter to give us a feel of what James is like. A little taste, a little sampling here. Today, though, I want to even focus more, more narrowly than all the verses I've read. I want to tune our ears in on just one verse, even. <laughs> just the first verse. Actually, I even want one word from that first verse. We won't go at this pace uh, for forever, but uh, we want just this one word that I think, I hope, I trust will be a helpful guide for us. I'll get to which word I'm talking about in just a moment. But first, let me read the first verse again so we hear it. James 1, 1, he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. (laughs) So even if you know nothing of the Bible or little of the Bible, or if this is even just your first time hearing these words, you can probably tell the type of thing that it is we're we're reading right away. It's not just the Bible. It is the Bible. But this part here is clearly a letter. And it's like most letters that we might be familiar with. Uh, There are particular people on the sending and receiving ends of this letter. And you may have noticed that the letter's written not just to a particular person. It's written to a particular group of people. If you look here in the first verse, the first hearers of the letter are the 12 tribes in the dispersion. What does that mean? The 12 tribes, maybe you recognize this, maybe you don't, but the 12 tribes refers to the Old Testament 12 tribes of Israel. So these these people have some sort of Jewish background, and they have now come to believe and to follow Jesus as their Savior and Lord. 
so those are, that's what the 12 tribes are, but we might be less familiar with the term dispersion. It's not a word I use very often in my own vocabulary. Some Bibles even translate it the diaspora, which is even more confusing, but the dispersed people is what that means. To the scattered people. So this is referring to the dispersion. There was a particular time in which the believers in Jesus were scattered. So this is most likely referring to the time in the book of Acts when Saul started killing Christians. And it began with the stoning of the man named Stephen. This is what happens in Acts chapter 8. Listen to the the dispersion or the scattering part. Acts 8 verse 1. Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And those who were scattered went about preaching the word. This is a pivot point in the book of Acts. This persecution caused this sort of scattering. So there were some good things that came from this dispersion. You know, what Saul meant for evil in trying to kill off the church, God meant for good. So this persecution is sort of like, you know the dandelions when they turn white? That puff, this persecution is like the on the dandelion. And the word of God then becomes this scattered seed that just goes everywhere and begins to bloom. So there is good that comes from it, but surely this dispersion was difficult for those who experienced it. They're being dragged off into prison. I'm sure there was some measure of fear sadness. I mean, they're being splintered in all directions, losing some of their families, some of their homes. They're described here as being ravaged. So now James is sending out this letter to the dispersed ones. It is going out like water to this scattered dandelion seed to guide and encourage them in the midst of their hardship, to remind them of their God, and to remind them to hold fast to faithful obedience to Jesus. So we'll get to see how that unfolds in the coming chapters. But that's at least, I want to know some context. That's who James is talking to. Or, yeah, that's who the letter is going to. Today, though, I want to take a moment to look at who this letter is coming from. Who's the one speaking to us here? So I'm going to have to take a rabbit trail to do this. Stick with me. I know rabbit trails wander off. Hang with me. I hope, trust, there will be a payoff at the end of this. Who is speaking to us here? Who's this letter from? We know all scripture is breathed out by God. So we are hearing God's words, God's very word. And at the same time, they are also the words of a human author. Here, that human author identifies himself as James. That's it. Just James. There's no last name. There's no James, son of so-and-so. 
there's, there's no little epithet, you know, like Alexander the Great or Ivan the Terrible, just, just James. And if this letter were sent from one person to one person, or even one person to one church, this would be no surprise. We'd know exactly who it was. When someone says, oh, hey, text, 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 hey, it's James, we know, bing, I know who that is. But this letter is not just sent out to a particular person or a particular church, it's being scattered out there like dandelion seeds. So this James must be someone they knew. It's not even just that James was a particularly unique name. It's not like a letter from, like, I don't know, Cher, Bono, or Usher, you know. Letter from Usher, like, ooh, I know who Usher is. Some of you know who that is. Some of you have no idea who I'm talking about. James, in their world, was a pretty common name. And yet he just identifies himself as James, which means he must be so familiar so famous that he can just give his name James and the readers would know who he is. This letter is from the James. Now, who is the James? Out of the 12 apostles, the apostles were the ones that, that Jesus handpicked to travel with him in his ministry for three years. Of those 12 apostles, two were named James. One we know in the scripture as James, the son of Alphaeus. And sometimes he's traditionally called James the Less. Seems like kind of a bummer of a, I don't want to be called Nathan the Less. Uh, but James the Less, the reason why we call him that is because we barely see him in the scripture at all. He's only in the list of the 12 apostles, and we know nothing about him other than that. So it's very unlikely that he would be the James. So if it's not James, the son of Alphaeus, the other James is James, the son of Zebedee. He was the brother of John. John, the writer of the Gospel of John and the letters of John and even the book of Revelation. So big famous guy, famous brother, famous family. Uh, and and, and this James, James the brother of John, was part of Jesus' inner circle. There was Peter, James, and John who really knew the most about Jesus. They were very familiar of all the particulars of Jesus' ministry. So he would be a likely candidate to be the James here, except that he was killed. Bummer. We know in Acts chapter 12, right at the beginning, long before this letter is written, uh, he was axed by Herod. So he could not be the author of this letter. Who then is the James? Who's the author speaking to us here? There is one other James in the scripture who is prominent enough to be a one-named author. And most scholars throughout the centuries agree that this particular James is the author of the letter. He pops up in various places in the New Testament. Paul mentions him a few times, but one time he says this about him just sort of in passing in Galatians chapter 1. Where is it? Well, let me read verse 18. Paul says this. Listen for the James. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, I remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. James, the Lord's brother. 
This James is the brother of Jesus. And we're not just talking about spiritual brothers. You know how Christians sometimes, hey, brothers this, hey, sister this. No, we're talking about biological brothers. Technically, I guess they'd be half-brothers since Jesus' father is the father. Uh, But at any rate, James and Jesus grew up in the same household. Siblings. Jesus actually has four brothers, at least four that are named in the scripture that we know of. Uh, Joseph, uh, Simon, Judas, or Jude, and James. And boy, you think you had a rough go with your siblings? Imagine if Jesus were your older brother. Uh, So if all this is news to you, that Jesus actually had siblings, I mean, we hear about Mary and Joseph. We just went through the Christmas season, but there's no other kids running around everywhere. If it's news that Jesus uh, had other siblings, uh, that's pretty normal. It's pretty easy to miss that little tidbit in the scriptures. His brothers are barely mentioned in the Gospels. Because as far as we can tell, even though they were Jesus' brothers, they did not believe in him as Lord. As far as we can tell, during his ministry, they did not trust that he was the Messiah. Now, we don't know most of their stories, or even much of James' story, except Paul tells us in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, that Jesus appeared to James here, this James, his brother, after he was resurrected from the dead. And it seems that after seeing his brother Jesus having been crucified and now alive again, James came to really believe that his brother is Christ the Messiah, the Savior of sinners. His brother James then goes on to become a pretty powerful and influential member of the church in Jerusalem. And he becomes so well-known that he can go by just... James. That was the long rabbit trail. Let me get us back on the main path here. Here's the reason why I even mention all of this. This is not just Jeopardy material, not just little fun trivia bits. This matters. We have this letter here from James, from the James, James, who is among the elders at the hub of Jerusalem. James, who is the brother of Jesus in the same household with intimate knowledge of the Lord. James, who was an eyewitness of the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And James mentions none of that here. He only describes himself instead with one Word. Did you see it? Here's the word James, a servant. A servant. Of all of the things that James could have said about himself, this is the word he chooses. Not James, a brother of Jesus. Not James, an elder of the church. Not James, an eyewitness of the resurrection. James, a servant. Or we could translate it, James, a bondservant. Or even James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, I want to be careful here not to overread James's mindset in why exactly he did all of this, but to identify himself as a slave of Christ and of God does not seem to be a burden for James. I mean, his very next words are, count it all joy, my brothers. You know, he's going to go on in this book to talk about how he and his readers are beloved, how they've been given perfect gifts, how they're the first fruits of God's creatures, how they're recipients of the crown of life. This doesn't sound like a man who is begrudging of his position as a slave. His position then does not seem to be a heavy chain for him. He seems to be a willing, if I can say it, happy slave of Christ. He's calling his own biological brother, Jesus, his Lord, his slave master even. So one writer said about this, the highest ranks in the church are still only servants. So if that's true of James, that's true of me. That's true of you. To be a slave of God and of Christ. And I know and I need to acknowledge that the slave is a loaded word. Understandably so. I mean, there's, there's an awful history of oppressive slavery in our country and across the world. Slavery here is not meant to demean us or to degrade us in this context. We know followers of Jesus in the scripture are called lots of things. We're called children of the Father. We're called friends of God. We're called the bride of Jesus. All of those things are true of every Christian, of everyone who puts faith in Jesus. So our relationship to God is not just a contract. It's not just a matter of business. This isn't just some sort of labor relationship. He sits on the throne and we sit around and do his bidding. Our connection to God is full of affection, of tenderness. We hear in the scripture, nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ. So we should never forget that. And yet at the same time, it is important that we learn also to see ourselves as servants or even slaves of God. This is a good reality for us to embrace. We need to learn this. Here's why. The scripture says to us, that every person, believer or not, in some sense is a slave already. We're slaves already of something. Whatever, you've, whatever has overcome you to that you are enslaved, we're told. And we can see that to be true in our own experience. We are captive to things that are called the desires of the flesh. So we are in bondage to things like sexual immorality, bondage to fits of anger. We're in bondage to jealousies and divisions that are fueled by our own 
pride and cravings for praise. I could go on about all of these things, what they look like, but I doubt that I need to because you probably know your particular desires of the flesh. You probably already know what exerts the most mastery over your heart. I know mine. And these things, these desires of the flesh are cruel slave masters to us. And if they're left unchecked, they will eventually kill us. Or worse, separate us from God. So then the good news is that for the Christian, for the one who puts faith and trust in Jesus, we're told then sin has no dominion over you. Christian, sin has no dominion over you. It will claw at you. It will beckon you. It will even entice you into it at times. That's true. But it does not own you. Sin is not your master anymore. So when Jesus then becomes Lord of our lives, he is not just freeing us out of ownership. He is transferring ownership. That sin was once our master, but now we are, Matt, we are servants of God. So then when you face sins and temptations in your own life, you can look it in the eye and say, you are not my master. Jesus is. Like James, I am a slave of God and a servant of Christ. Christ is your master, and he is a firm, yet kind and loving master. Now we as his servants live to do our master's bidding. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for freeing us as your own from the slavery of sin and not just putting us out to pasture but bringing us under your own lordship. Would you help us to taste the freedom of service to you? Lord, help us to be glad and willing servants to the glory of your great name. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.